0: And so as we have concluded our series on the Sermon on the Mount, uh, we will actually begin a new series as we explore and journey through the book of Jonah together. And so now, the reading of Scripture.
1: Today's reading is from Jonah, chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord his God from the belly of the fish, saying, I called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice. For you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the floods surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head at the roots of the mountains. and the lord spoke to the fish and the vomited jonah out upon the dry land this is the word of the lord
0: well good morning my name is tar george and i'm the director of family discipleship here at grace toronto church and today i have the tremendous privilege of exploring with you this great passage from jonah chapter 2. over the last few weeks we've been looking at the book of jonah and learning about how god is relentless in his love and pursuit of people Both people who claim to worship God and don't do what he says, like Jonah, and people who don't know anything about God and do whatever they wish, like the Ninevites. And this book is fascinating in showing that both kinds of people are equally lost. Regardless of how you and I may identify as religious or not, all of us seem to have an impaired vision. We often don't have a right view of ourselves, much less a right view of God. In 2006, Scotiabank kicked off an incredibly successful campaign built on the slogan, You're richer than you think. Maybe you've heard of it before. It quickly gained traction and grew to become one of the most widely recognized taglines among banks in Canada, with an 85% recall rate among consumers. Business analysts hailed the slogan as being instrumental in the bank's success and growth. It was fantastic. It was brilliant. But then in 2008, the recession happened, and something changed. Ad campaigns were met with heckling, swearing, booing, vandalism. All of a sudden, people didn't feel all that rich. The bank quickly responded to tweak their branding. The slogan evolved to emphasize an abundance of life and personal wealth beyond just money. Richness became about making the most of what you had, being grateful, enjoying the little things. And it actually paid off. People felt happier, more financially secure, and more hopeful. Sure, finances were tight but you still had your health and you were still surrounded by your loved ones. Well, another decade has gone by and the slogan has all but vanished from the bank's website. In a time where health is tenuous, people are on financial assistance, families are separated, and anxiety is at an all-time high. The thought that you're richer than you think seems painfully inappropriate. The new message on this business's website and almost all websites these days simply reads, we're here for you. It's the only consolation our culture can now provide. And this isn't an isolated case. You see, almost every business and individual has had to pivot during this season. COVID-19 has shattered a lot of our expectations. We're not richer, nor wiser, nor more tolerant, nor more capable than what we thought. Our situation has disrupted our view of ourselves, and maybe even of God. And this, this is precisely where we find Jonah. Here is a man who is at the end of himself. Life has not gone the way he thought it would go. He was a prophet, but now finds himself unemployed. He saved up for a nice trip, but it has fallen flat. He had a community, but is unable to see them. He was healthy, but now finds his life slipping away. You see, Jonah's circumstances reflect a lot about how our culture is feeling right now. Our shared circumstances have disrupted our view of ourselves. The blinders are finally off and things look kind of bleak. And in this timely passage, the author invites us to reflect on our impaired vision and ask, do we really have a right view of ourselves? In this text before us, he calls us to see ourselves holistically in two ways. First, to see your sinfulness. And second, to see your significance. See your sinfulness and see your significance. Well, in chapter 1, we learn that the prophet Jonah has disobeyed God's command to go to the city of Nineveh and call them to repent. Jonah has instead fled in the opposite direction and has attempted a journey by sea to a place called Tarshish. God is unimpressed with Jonah's actions and sends a storm to stop the ship from going any further. Jonah then realizes that God is still pursuing him and in a last-ditch effort asks his fellow sailors to throw him overboard as a means to appease God and maybe even put an end to his life. But you see, God won't let him go. God sends a large fish to swallow Jonah and preserve his life and our passage takes place seemingly in the belly of this fish. Now before we go any further, it seems necessary to address the fact that people are often puzzled by this story and the details of Jonah's survival. Let me first say that the Bible is filled with miracles, some happening through secondary means and others that defy our understanding completely. We live in an increasingly secular and intellectualized culture that puts borders around what is feasible and possible, and God is quite outside of these things. The Bible instead invites you to ask, is this world and all that I see all that there really is? I invite you to wrestle with that. Second, you should know that Jonah is recorded in 2 Kings 14 as being a real person, prophesying during the reign of Jeroboam II. He does not appear to be a made-up person, so we cannot simply write off his story as being fictitious. And third and finally, Jesus himself seems to treat this story as a real event in Matthew 12. And the entire biblical witness testifies that Jesus did stranger, more unbelievable things than this. You see, you take all these things together, and it seems like the Bible asks you to suspend your disbelief. And yet, whatever you may think about the story, the author's intention is not to mire you down in the details, but to have you consider Jonah's words, and how he and we, by extension, ought to see ourselves. And so we're going to do that. In this passage, the author paints an interesting picture of Jonah as one who has sinned and is fleeing from God, and yet for whatever reason, God seems really intent on seeking this man out. Jonah is presented as this person who is both deeply sinful and yet also deeply significant to God. The author holds both of these truths in tension for how we are to see ourselves rightly. First, he shows us Jonah's sinfulness. The chapter opens with Jonah praying before God, he seems pious on the surface, but there are several clues from the author to suggest that Jonah's piety is somewhat superficial. Our suspicions are first alerted in chapter 1, where Jonah claims that he is a worshiper of the God of heaven, and yet ironically doesn't want to listen to what God has to say. Now we know from the previous chapter that he has sinned against God by disobeying, but we don't hear to, seem to hear much of a confession from him in the prayer that follows. Indeed, the way Jonah responds in this prayer is quite puzzling to a number of scholars. In verse 3, he says to God, You cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, forgetting that it was he who asked to be thrown into the water. In verse 4, he says to God, I am driven away from your sight, forgetting that his entire plan and purpose in chapter 1 was to flee from the presence of the Lord in the first place. The author wants you to know that this is important. You see, the irony of Jonah's situation is that he has received the very thing that he wanted. He longed to be free of God's presence, to have nothing to do with God's word. And he is now shocked to find that freedom from God looks nothing like what he thought it would. And in what follows, the author invites us behind the scenes to enter the story and see Jonah more clearly. He wants us to reflect on the effects of Jonah's sin. And here's what we see. We see Jonah in anguish without God. He talks in great length about his suffering which the author wants you to know is a direct consequence of his sin. And yet 80% of Jonah's prayer to God is taken up with how badly he is suffering with little to no recognition of why he is actually suffering. This is important. Jonah goes on about how the waters are surrounding him inside the fish. Waves are going over his head and threaten to take his life. There are weeds and all manner of disgusting things around him. He can feel himself being dragged down to the depths of the sea, and his life is fainting away. And most notably, he describes himself as suffering not in the belly of a fish, but of Sheol, which in the biblical worldview was a way of speaking about the realm of the dead. Now this is all strong language, but the author wants you to understand the seriousness of Jonah's situation. Turning away from God is not a small or trivial thing. Proverbs 16.25 says this, that there's a way that seems right to a man, but in the end it leads only to death, only to suffering, only to heartache. Here Jonah acknowledges that he's in the very belly of death. The way that seemed right to him has actually estranged him from God. See, to Jonah fleeing to the land of Tarshish represented the potential for flourishing apart from God. And it is as if the author is saying, don't kid yourself. Don't kid yourself. See, what Jonah is experiencing here is a visual representation of what it looks like when people reject God and go their own way. At first, the way seems viable and right. It promises happiness and comfort. But without God, the destination is still the same. This passage challenges us with the most uncomfortable notion that you may think you're bound for Tarshish when you may actually be heading to Sheol. This text asks you to very carefully examine the trajectory of your life. If you turn away from God and want nothing more to do with Him, what are you really left with? And I think it's here, as Jonah nears death, that he realizes what eternity away from God actually looks like. And it's not at all what he wants. He feels himself being dragged further and further into the depths, and the chasm between he and his God above is just increasing. It's widening both physically and spiritually. And scholars here think that through his suffering, Jonah is beginning to understand something of the consequence of his sin. As his life is fainting away, he begins to maybe see himself rightly as a sinner. Now, if you're here and exploring the Christian faith, you need to know that this is a fundamental tenet of what we believe. The Bible claims that all people are sinful. All of us regularly use our words, thoughts, and actions to hurt and offend both God and our neighbors. We make decisions every day, both consciously and unconsciously, that run contrary to the Word of God. And the Bible calls this sin. It affects everyone. In the book, you'll see that the people of Nineveh are condemned for neither knowing God nor obeying Him. And in this chapter, Jonah here is condemned for being fully aware of God, having all knowledge of Him, and yet disobeying God even still. The author insists here that sin makes no distinction between the religious and the irreligious. In fact, you will realize that literally every other person in this book appears to be more honest about their sin and more open to God than the one believer in the story. If you've ever wondered why religious people are sometimes worse than everybody else, look no further. This book answers you with a flurry of color. See, it doesn't matter if you're a prophet or a pagan, a Christian or an atheist, a church gore or a hedonist. you can be a worshiper of God and be wallowing in sin. You can claim to know nothing about God and still be called to account. Sin has affected every part of our lives, and we need to come clean. We need to confess to God. Jonah doesn't quite do that, does he? Notice that throughout this prayer, not once do we hear Jonah say, I confess, Lord, forgive me. See, I think Jonah, like many of us, has an inflated view of himself. Not only is he a Jew, but he's a prophet. He's God's representative. He knows God's law. Surely he's not so bad. You might have a different standard. Perhaps you're kind or you've dedicated your life to helping people. Maybe you're engaged in social justice or you give to the poor. Maybe you define your goodness by the things you don't do or the ways that you aren't like everybody else. I wonder, what is the thing deep down that assures you that you're a good person? Has it held true all the time? See, here's the principal problem of sin. The Bible describes people as not only being sinful, but we're also people who fail to take our sin seriously. Sin keeps us from seeing ourselves rightly. In her critically acclaimed book, Mistakes Were Made But Not By Me, psychologist Dr. Carol Tavris examines how the human brain appears wired for self-justification. She talks about how all people experience a certain kind of cognitive dissonance, a, a discrepancy between how we choose to see ourselves versus how we really and truly are. She writes, cognitive dissonance is what we feel when a self-concept I'm smart, I'm kind, I'm good is threatened by evidence that we did something that wasn't smart that we hurt another person or that wasn't good. She explains that this cognitive dissonance threatens to dismantle our personal sense of self and to reduce this feeling of dissonance we either have to modify and protect our view of ourselves or accept the evidence that we're not as good as we thought. She jokes, Guess which route people prefer? See, over and over again, her research showed that it is significantly difficult for people to relinquish a sense of their rightness. We do everything we possibly can to defend our view of ourselves as being morally good, right, responsible, wise, and dependable. We are people who constantly deflect. We either believe that our mistakes were isolated incidents in an otherwise perfect track record Oh, when that fails, we pat ourselves by thinking that at least we're better than somebody else. Have you ever found yourself doing that? I find that true of myself. And the author here wants to expose that tendency in all of us. Look at how Jonah responds to being confronted about his sin in verses 8 to 9. Near the end of his prayer, he says, Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love, but I, I will sacrifice to you. Do you hear that? He says, I'm not like those foolish idol worshippers. Their judgment is deserved, but I, I am a true worshiper. I'm different. I'm better than them. He deflects. And then, almost without skipping a beat, he says, But I, with a voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I vowed I will pay. Translation, thanks for bringing this to my attention. I think I can take it from here. Do you see what's happening? Jonah deflects. Jonah deflects big time. When Jonah is confronted about his sin, his response is not, I have sinned, forgive me. It's comical. He responds with, at least I'm better than those people, and I'll do better next time. Here's cognitive dissonance at its finest or what the Bible prefers to call sin. Jonah would rather minimize and manage his sin than admit what is true about himself, that he is a sinner. So you and I are not so different from Jonah, are we? We deflect all the time in our workplaces, with our families and our relationships. We steal the credit and shift the blame. We pat ourselves on the back when we hear of other people's mistakes. We minimize our faults and justify our errors. We dismiss those who criticize us and surround ourselves with those who only praise us. See, we don't like being in the wrong either. We deflect all the time. And you see, to have a right view of ourselves, we must be able to see ourselves clearly with all our imperfections. This passage asks you to be humble, to be willing to see your sin, and to own it. And yet, and yet, lest you leave this text feeling hopeless and that your life is sinful and useless, the author reminds us that our lives are also deeply significant to God. And in order to see yourself rightly, you must also see from this text how deeply you are loved. You are significant. The author here in this passage wants to show us that we are significant to God for two reasons. First, because God is merciful. And second, because God is on a mission. Notice that for all Jonah's disobedience, God still listens to him. He is merciful. He says, I called out and God answered me. I cried and God heard my voice. Scholars even note that the fish that was sent by God was actually sent to save Jonah. Jonah. He would surely have died and drowned. God is merciful, and throughout this prayer, this theme emerges over and over. Jonah seems confident that the Lord is a God who saves. Even though he doesn't quite have a right view of himself, he does seem to understand something about the character of God. This is a God who rescues. Jonah says that he was in the belly of death, but God brought up my life from pit. Now the immediate question we're faced with is this. Why is God merciful to this man? He doesn't seem to fully confess his sin. He's stubborn. He's rebellious. Why does God waste his time with a man like this? Why indeed? You see, this man is significant to God, but not for the reasons he thinks. God does not choose him because he is a good person or because he is faithful. If these were the criteria, God would surely be done with him by now. But Psalm 145 says this, that God is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He shows mercy to those who don't deserve it and he gives his steadfast love to those who have no claim over it. And yet unfortunately by the end of Jonah's prayer he still hasn't understood this. In verses 8 to 9, he claims that those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Jonah's arrogance is that he thinks that God has saved him because he prays to the right God and he doesn't serve idols. Jonah believes the lie that a person is significant to God based on what he or she does or what he or she doesn't do. You know what the huge irony of this passage is? Three days prior, before Jonah prays this prayer, the author tells us that the sailors, these men who knew nothing about God and worshipped idols, feared the Lord exceedingly. And then hear this in chapter 1, verse 16. They offered a sacrifice to God and made vows. Isn't that amazing? These pagans who knew nothing about God and worshipped idols humbled themselves and turned to God well before Jonah. Jonah thinks that these non-Jews have forsaken their hope of steadfast love, but they're sacrificing and making vows to God before he did. Jonah even announces near the end of his prayer that salvation belongs to the Lord. He doesn't understand what he said. In the background, the author wants you to know how true that statement really is. God is affecting his salvation all around Jonah. He's showing grace, mercy, and steadfast love to sinners of all kinds. These people matter to God. They are significant. I wonder, what makes you feel significant? Is it your performance or your paycheck, your ability to help others, your character or your integrity? If you think that there is a God, what makes you think that He cares about you? Is it because you're a good person or you love your neighbor? Because you worship Him or read the Bible? Is it because you're productive in the faith? See, the challenge of Christianity is that your significance to God is not based on your performance or your output. This is not true before you turn to God, and certainly not true after you belong to Him. As the research shows, we often try to defend our significance by thinking that we're not flawed. The Bible says you are flawed, and yet you are significant. Significant. Jonah is significant to God for no other reason than because God is merciful. And we're told that God in His mercy speaks to the fish and it releases Jonah upon dry land. Jonah is saved. And yet that's not the end of the story, is it? Jonah is saved not as a means to an end. He is saved because God is also on a mission. People are significant to God not only because God loves them and He is merciful, but because God loves to use His people to extend His mercy. Notice that God has not saved Jonah just so that he could go back to the way things were. In fact, Jonah tries. He says, I shall again look upon your holy temple. But God says, no, actually, I think I have something else in mind. God rescues Jonah and releases him when Jonah vows to obey God and go to Nineveh. See, God in His wisdom lights to you sinners to participate in His work and mission. The beauty of the gospel is that God has ordained to use sinners, imperfect people, to reach out to other imperfect people. God has not made salvation known to you just to have it stop with you. And the author wants to make this clear. Jonah here is delighted to be saved. He cries, salvation belongs to the Lord. But you see, deep down Jonah is reluctant to extend this salvation to others. The salvation that he claims belongs to God functionally really belongs to him to hoard and consume to himself and withhold from others. The next week we'll be looking more in depth at God's mission but for now this text asks us this question. Whom does your salvation belong to? Whom does your salvation belong to? Because how you answer that question may determine how you see yourself. The author wants to say you are significant because God loves you and because God loves to use you. You are significant because God is merciful and because God is on a mission to save a great many sinners. See, it's this mission that leads God to send another final prophet, his own son. 700 years after this book is written, Jesus comes to us as one sent by God so that all people might begin to see themselves rightly. When questioned about his ministry in Matthew 12, Jesus responds that he is one like Jonah who has come to fulfill God's mission. Yet those listening to him didn't understand what he was about to do. As a prophet, he could have called out to sinners as Jonah was instructed to do. But Jesus understood that mere words were not enough. The chasm between God's holiness and people's sin was too great. Something else was needed to reconcile us to God and Jesus vowed to do it men and women Jonah's words were never more prophetic than when uttered by the son of god himself i with a voice of thanksgiving will sacrifice to you what i have vowed i will pay you see these words would be fulfilled by jesus christ as he climbed up onto the cross giving his up his life as a sacrifice for you and i with thanksgiving if you ever doubt that you're sinful before god look to the cross If you ever doubt that you're significant to God, you are invited to look yet again. God has not left you to wonder. See, Jonah is released from the belly of Sheol because there's one who takes his place. You and I are released from the consequences of our sin because there's one who bears them for us. The Gospel proves that salvation belongs to God in the most painfully poetic way. He both owns it, and yet it costs him everything. And yet, Jesus, knowing these events beforehand, prophesied this that as Jonah was in the belly of the great fish for three days and three nights, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. As Jonah is vomited out of the belly of Sheol, so too does Jesus emerge from the grave. Jesus is obedient to God in a way that no prophet or person before him could ever be, and death cannot hold him. This is the great news of the resurrection. Jesus is triumphant over death. The New Testament affirms that when we see ourselves rightly, when we turn from our sins and put our faith and trust in what Jesus has done, death has no hold over us either. Some implications from this passage. What is it calling us to do? I think this author is asking us to see ourselves afresh. This text asks you to humbly own your own sin. Now, for some of us, Christianity might seem unattractive for this reason. Why would I worship a God who wants to beat me over the head about my mistakes? Why would I care for a religion that just tells me that I'm a bad person? Let me say that confession is hard. It's difficult for all people, even believers, as this story shows us. But the Gospel's goal is not to have you think badly about yourself, but to have you think realistically and holistically about yourself. Our culture is not very good with this. We often swing back and forth between two extremes depending on what's trending in the news. We either believe that society is amazing and wonderful or that society is corrupted and awful. And only the gospel brings balance. If you believe you're only significant, you underestimate your sin. If you believe you're only sinful, you underestimate God's grace. This text asks you to see both, to see yourself in a balanced way. What could be better? Others of us here like the idea of God, I think, but don't like the way he might ask us to change. We want to live the way we want, and God's word seems restrictive and onerous. Many of us feel that God has a duty as an all-powerful being to love and protect us from all difficulty always. Like Jonah, we feel entitled to receive God's blessing, but not obligated to do what he says. This passage is for all of us. All of us, I think, like Jonah, feel content to be saved from the consequences of our sins, but not content enough to leave them behind. The story of Jonah, I think, is the story of all of us. And this is a challenge from this passage. This text asks you to not simply see your sin in general abstract terms, but to own it specifically. Would you take time this week to examine yourself? Spend some time in confession. Cry out to God. Consider your great need for Him. Ask the Holy Spirit to convict you of any ways that you have been resisting Him. What are the sins that you're finding hard to give up right now? Bring them to Jesus because He cares for you. Here's the point of the Gospel. Here's the point of this passage. Here's the point of all of this. All of us stand spiritually and morally bankrupt before God. We have nothing to our names. We are not, in fact, richer than we think. But hear these great words from Ephesians 2 that God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. This is a tremendous assurance in the gospel. May you see yourself as both sinful and significant. May this great hope stir you to see yourself afresh. Amen.